Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Veronica Morgan, who is the principal of Good Deeds Property Buyers. She's also the co-host of the Lifestyle Channel's Location, 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 and the co-host of the Elephant in the Room podcast, which you should definitely check out as well. We have a chat to Veronica about how she became a buyer's agent. We get some great advice on how to select high-performing properties, drowning out the noise of what's happening with the lending environment and the changes to negative gearing proposals by Labor and also what those implications are as well. She's got some great information about how we can drown out the noise, how we can select high-performing properties and the fundamental drivers that push capital growth for investment properties. It's a fantastic interview which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Here's Veronica. Veronica Morgan, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very much looking forward to having you, Veronica. But for those poor people who haven't heard of you, can you let us know who you are and what you specialize in? Well, I'm a licensed real estate agent. I work primarily with buyers, not sellers. I work in Sydney. I'm principal of Good Deeds Property Buyers. But I'm also a host or a co-host of a podcast called The Elephant in the Room. I also co-host a television show with Bryce Holdaway called Location, Location, Location Australia. Uh, So I'm fairly busy and fundamentally my business though, what we do, we help busy professionals buy their dream home or an investment property that outperforms in Sydney. Well, our listeners' ears are pricked up already. What posters (laughs) were on the bedroom wall growing up? Yeah, I thought about this because I have heard some of your episodes (laughs) and I thought you're going to ask me this question. sounds really bad but I actually had posters of BMWs and I know that's going to set the tone completely <laughs> wrongly because that's not really the person I am. But as a kid, you know, I just I loved the idea of this ultimate driving machine. So anyway, I um, that's so what, what I had I'm in my hearing walk. is that you're materialistic and you have nothing in common with the uh, the average investor. <laughs> that is the problem because yes, I do enjoy material things, but I wouldn't call myself I'm a car materialistic. Guy. I think it's okay to have passion about some things that might be slightly more expensive than I don't know, say golf. Uh, but it's okay. Well, yep. you know, as I say, <laughs> long form content. We'll get plenty of time to get to know you. Um, starting with, how did Absolutely. you get started in property, and what was your first investment? Well, okay, so how I got started in property, well, the first property I owned uh, was a studio apartment in Newtown in Sydney, and it was really accidental. I was working in recruitment at the time, and I was earning good money, and I had a boyfriend who said to me, oh, a friend of mine's a developer, and he's selling these one-bedroom apartments, and you should go and buy one. So I went off and had a look at the development that his friend was uh, building, and it was awful. And I didn't buy one of those, but it did get me fired up and I went around looking. I made lots of mistakes. Buying a studio was one of them. Um, if I actually stretched myself and bought something bigger, I may not have needed to sell that five years later in order to buy my first house. But that's how I got into buying a property and I was only 27 at the time. Uh, how I got into the property industry was because I had a failed business and yeah. I needed to pay some that's, debts. Uh, that's not the normal answer to a question like that. You know, people have got these stylized sort of no. story tale images. We've gone from BMW posters to failed businesses. What's going on? <laughs> well, funnily enough, I, um, you know, in my 20s, I had this goal and my sole goal wasn't actually to own a BMW. It was to um, earn six figures. That was my goal. And so I achieved that at the age of 
uh, I think 26, 27, when I was in recruitment, but I didn't like the work. And so I ended up chasing a passion. So I got the money bit and thought, well, that didn't fulfill me. So therefore I chased a passion, which was hospitality. And that's the business that uh, didn't do so well. Two years after that, I, my passion for hospitality was well and truly exhausted uh, and hence why I got into property and found actually a and whole so new passion. And so what was it about real estate and then, of course, becoming a buyer's agent that, that, that struck you? What sort of person gets passionate about that? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, um, I mean, I'm a, when I had I'm the cafe, so I had a cafe. Right? So that's even more ridiculous. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it is, yeah. Weirdly enough, though, you go to a barbecue and you say, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a buyer's agent or a real estate agent. Oh, great. What's my house worth? <laughs> What's the property market doing? You always got somebody asking questions. So I'm not sure about you. You know, what does it cost mm, to build no, my house? Say, what is that? And I go, <laughs> oh, gosh, I wish I was a fighter pilot. Here I go. I have to explain it. So uh, yes. So why 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 do I have passion in real estate? So when I had the cafe, I was in Manly, uh, and I don't know what I had a lot of uh, real estate clients, customers, um, and I guess you know I just found it interesting chatting to people generally, and found it interesting talking to them about what they did, etc., etc. And I I guess I started reading the Manly Daily, which was full of ads for property, and I got into just looking and and curious and so I guess when I realized that the cafe was it was time to get out and I had some debts to pay off and I thought I don't want to go back into recruitment I didn't enjoy it but I was good at selling and I did enjoy that that too I did enjoy the consultative side of it and I also enjoyed the idea of going out and finding your business and then going out and finding the candidates to fulfill that business and I figured I could go out and find listings and I could go and find buyers to buy those listings and the, the buyers didn't have to like the vendors as opposed to in recruitment where your candidate has to like the client and vice versa. And so that was the logic that got me into property and the minute, oh, I wouldn't say the minute, so let's say the first three months, after the first three months of really just stopping blinking my eyes, I realized I really got it. I just got it. It's natural to me. I just understand it. And a big part of it is because it is behavioral. It's all about human beings. Um, but I'm interested in the bricks and mortar side of things as well. Yeah, so it's exactly. a great marriage. That's an interesting thing. That you've, 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 you've taken away one barrier that the buyers don't have to like the vendors. In fact, often there's, uh, there's an, intermediary, <laughs> uh, an intermediary that's making them dislike each other even more, but they've still got to work with them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that's probably why, you know, in terms of jumping, because originally I was a sales agent, so I worked as a sales agent for six years, and then I took a year off when I had my daughter and jumped the fence to becoming a buyer's agent, and that was very much, I enjoy working with real estate agents because A, I am one, and B, I understand them, so I get I get the job that they've got to do, and I think that I can add extraordinary value by being that buffer. Um, between we the have some friends the that are agents, but um, even they would admit that there's a lot of BS in that industry. And you've seemed to have a fairly well uh, developed BS radar, and I think that comes across really strongly in the in the elephant in the room uh, interviews. It it seems like it has a a, a very strong spruker smashing aim, um, and arming you know arming people with info <laughs> to stop themselves being what you guys term the the property dumbo. Um, was that the motiv motivation yeah. for starting the podcast? And, 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 and what are some of the Dumbo mistakes that you see people fall into with, with these sort of crafty agents? It's not just the agents. You know, the reason that people make flawed decisions is flawed thinking and that comes from yourself. 
you know. So um, I'm a big advocate for people taking responsibility for their own decisions. Now, I get that agents sometimes can mislead buyers and I get also that agents have a job to do and they, they uh, a skilled agent is very good at influencing buyers and, and all that sort of stuff and the buyer is unmatched because the buyer is not a professional at doing this and the buyer is emotionally invested and financially invested in what they're doing. Um, so they are unmatched and to not recognise that and take positive action to protect yourself is foolish. And so that's that's part of it. So I'll spruker yeah. bash, but I won't agent bash. And I won't auctioneer yeah. bash either because they've got a job to do. Spruikers, however, have been allowed to flourish for two reasons, I believe. One, the government encourages them through not regulating the industry and also in particular with some policies that absolutely encourage yes. the you know new development. The government encourages spruikers. And on the other side of things, people are wishful thinkers and people want to get rich quick and people want to believe sales feel and people like to be rescued. And when you've got individuals who want all these magic solutions, don't necessarily want to invest their own time and energy and the long time it takes to really make money in property, then they're going to fall prey to the lines that spruikers um, yeah, it's like confirmation bias stuff, right? We want we yeah. want the shortcuts to be correct and true, and that's you know why there's a massive dieting industry. That's why property investors yes. only maybe buy one property on average, right? Is that is that what you yep. uh, in the podcast you talk about? You know, asking the question, who's really in charge, the elephant or the rider? Is is that sort of what <laughs> you're getting at there? Absolutely. So if you talk to psychologists, I mean, you'll hear somewhere upwards of 80% of our decisions are actually driven by the subconscious. And um, behavioral scientists would, you know, would, like in our first episode, we interviewed a behavioral scientist, and that's sort of the foundation of the whole, uh, whole series, really, where we have, we all have these, these thinking shortcuts and, and behavioral biases that lead us to act in certain ways. And even if we're aware of them, that's not even in itself enough of a um, protection at times, but certainly it's the first step. So that's really the premise of the whole podcast is that, you know, you're not really in control. You might think you are, but you're not. So here's where we're going to start uncovering why and then who really is in control and how could you actually make better decisions? I think that you're, you guys are doing a great job at letting us sort of peer behind the, the curtain there and, and that, it is a really uh, a strong sort of theme that goes through the, the podcast, understanding our own motivations and the power of influence. I remember you wrote something, it might have just been a LinkedIn comment or something like that talking about a coffee truck at uh, an auction, right? Yes. And I thought that's a, that's yeah. a that was a really uh, poignant point you made about you know the 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 idea that some you owe someone a favor for a three or four dollar cup of coffee, uh, and that favor might be mm. a ten thousand dollar incremental bid on an auction. It's but it's real, right? Yeah, I mean it's called reciprocal. Um, this reciprocity, so the reciprocal bias, if you like, or reciprocal effect. And, yeah, it doesn't have to, you know, so if someone gives you something, you feel this inclination to give back and it doesn't have to be proportionate to what was given to you in the first place. So it just creates, I guess, that sort of sense of, um, you know, if the agent does come and talks to you and is trying to get a bid from you, you may be a little less defensive about that, for instance. It could be as simple as that or it could even be that if the agent comes up and talks to you because they're really trying to 
do a bit of smoke, smoke and uh, smoke and mirrors um, action, and that is they're trying to make it look like there's lots of guys in the room and they're talking to, and they just come up and ask you, you know, oh, did you like your coffee? You know, was it was it the right temperature? And and very quietly, and nobody else hears and say that, and and you nod. It it it's it's a little thing that you will do. Yes, just as a small uh, thank yeah, you. I mean, you know, I, I giving back. Every sort of rhinoceros comes with its own little bird right and and reciprocity and and symbiosis it's it's beautiful but you can tip the scales and use that against them and the moment you hear that agent ask the same question to 40 people you're like wait on hold on a minute they're using it against us <laughs> so yes well that first episode where we uncover some of those those biases and that was one of the ones we discussed in that first episode but we actually interviewed uh see behavioral scientist that we interviewed in the first episode, Simon Russell, he went to an auction and he's not in the property game and he went to his first ever auction in Melbourne and we interviewed the actual auctioneer uh, sometime later. We interviewed him, I think he's episode 37, right, so that's Tim Heaviside and we asked him direct questions around these these particular things that um, had been identified and, yeah, he talks about his, his deliberateness, if that's a word. Yeah. You know, these are very yeah, deliberate and, uh, tactics. As far of his. as I'm aware, Tim's a pretty big lister down down south there. Let's um, what what about yourself? Obviously, yeah, um, yeah. forty odd episodes at, at the time of recording here. Um, what what have you sort of learned about different different peripheral fields that have helped you be a better negotiator, be a better investor, or maybe even human? <laughs> well, I learnt. An extraordinary amount. In fact, it's been so invigorating. I, I really have rediscovered my love of learning um, through this. And some of the things, like even just the very second episode, we interviewed Damien Cooley and he lifted the bonnet and just absolutely, almost forensically went through, you know, how he constructs an auction and what he does in certain um, instances. And and I'd observed this sort of thing for years and I'd documented it, written about it. I, I'd, um, you know, I'd develop tactics around it but even then I still learnt more and so that was sort of that was the start of it all and we've interviewed data scientists and and researchers that have absolutely broadened broadened my knowledge of what is important research and important data um, but also honed my previous beliefs as well uh, some of those beliefs are being absolutely set in stone now because they you know I, I know i was on the right track others have been actually molded a bit and, and opened up a bit um so that's been incredible we had we actually did a master class on negotiation uh skills with a professional negotiator for instance and and that was amazing because you know i've done a lot of this stuff instinctively but i hadn't realized that there are proper names for it uh, <laughs> so yes. Learning all about that and just those frameworks, so that allows me once again I can come back and implement that in my business as well. And um, those sorts of things have been amazing. Isn't that good? Yeah, you just sit behind a microphone and ask questions, and uh, yeah, it's amazing what uh, what gets stuffed into your ears. Um, yeah, let's get back to to yourself and what you specialize in. Um, obviously, you work with property investors, which we'll touch on in a bit more detail. Um, but but owner occupiers as well. I'm I'm interested in what it's been like working with the the first homeowners and the owner ox say two years ago compared to today logic sort of says that they should be having a field day but i'm just i'm just wondering are people taking the opportunity to to jump in or is it kind of like they're a bit hesitant because they're thinking the market's maybe got a bit further to go well two years ago people could get finance easily uh -huh. um 
there would be people would hesitant back then for different reasons. They'd be hesitating because they think, oh, this is surely going to end. I'm not going to wait till the market falls before I buy. Um, so we had quite a lot of people that were in that boat, you know. So there was there's always a, a certain segment of the market that's going to be hesitant. Um, so now what we are seeing is that even those who are very, very enthusiastic about buying a property and, and taking advantage of these conditions, their runway in terms of or their lead time in terms of getting finance is a hell of a lot longer than what ever has been. You know, we'd have situations a couple of years ago where people could get finance in a week. Mm. Um, towards the end of last year, or towards the end of 2017, um, we had this interesting phenomena started and I wrote a blog at the time called the embarrassed buyer syndrome because we started observing that our clients, they come to us and we'd always make sure they're pre-approved and all the rest of it. And that pre-approval wasn't sticking. You know, we'd find property, we think, right, let's go down the process of due diligence, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's check in with your, um, your broker or your bank. Uh, we do that fairly early on in the process and we were finding that, oh no, that pre-approval isn't necessarily current okay, what's required? And, and all of a sudden, we started seeing this real process taking a month. We need all this extra documentation. So that started really manifesting itself. When we were going to auctions and so the agents were coming up to us saying, oh, my God, I don't know what's happened. In the last two days, I've lost three buyers. My three strongest buyers, they've gone. And the agents didn't know why at that point. They had no idea. And it's taken them a while. To, it took them a while because the buyers were not – confessing this they're all embarrassed because like who can't yeah. get finance it's really embarrassing it, so hmm. so now of course and we do have want to buy and want to take advantage of the conditions um and particularly upgraders the conditions are very very favorable to upgraders as long as, long as they can get finance um but what we're finding is that people have to really evaluate Everything, you know, obviously expenses and all the rest of it that it's been well publicized, but quite often people have actually gone and bought investment properties or they've, they've gone and committed some of their borrowing capacity in ways that were not that wise. And now it's a, it's a precious resource now. So now they've got to look at if they do have a portfolio, and, and I'm not saying anyone that's bought <laughs> through us, of course, but, <laughs> but for those people who, you know, run off and bought properties and bought a lot of properties over you know recent years so the last 10 years now they're really having to sit down and really analyze those properties fairly forensically and say well are they quality assets and what is the actual opportunity cost to me of having my borrowing capacity tied up in property that yeah because i mean you, could, you could hold a portfolio with some so, underperforming mm. properties in there and just sort of go oh it's all right you know i'll get a bit of equity uplifts and borrow against that but now people are hitting their heads on the ceiling and having to mm. maybe look to dispose some of those right yes and look the thing is and, and i've actually developed a whole methodology around evaluating the caliber of the asset because you need to look at Everything that you have in your portfolio, you need to really look at all of them because we are predisposed to sell the wrong Interesting. ones. What, and, and can you elaborate on that? What, what, what makes us sell the ones that aren't necessarily growing? Is it, is it our time horizon or are we focusing on the wrong things? Definitely. It comes back to, once again, behavioral science and it comes back to things such as the disposition effect or one, um, yeah. loss aversion, right? So... Yeah, so and it's well documented and studied in the share markets where people, you know, might be investing in shares and they'll look at the ones that have made the money and they'll look at those that haven't made the money and they'll be thinking the ones that haven't made the money, they think, oh, look, I'll, I'll hold on to that bit longer, it's got to come good. 
Um, and if I sell out of it, I have to actually realize that loss and I don't want to experience yeah, it's the not pain real until you of get rid that of it, loss. Right? You know, if it's still exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's actually realizing the loss that is, yes. Um, whereas they'll often sell out of good assets because they can feel good about themselves, pat themselves on the back for the fact that they've actually made a good gain. And if you actually said, hang on a minute, okay, these are some financial reasons, you know, okay, it gives you a bit of money, all that sort of stuff, there's behavioral science behind this, there's, you know, faulty, faulty thinking, flawed thinking once again. You think, hang on a minute, let me just look at the caliber of what I'm holding. What is going to be better for me in five years or ten years, you know? That will change that decision making mm. or that thinking process, and but that's the bit that's missing. And if you go and get finance, you know, advice from your accountant, it'll be around the tax. If you, or you know, maybe cash flows. If you go and talk to your financial planner, it's going to be about cash flows and projections, yep. and those projections mean nothing. Um, you know, it's going to be around yields. It's going to be around you know how much have you got tied up in borrow, etc considerations which are all very important need to be uh, part of and factored into the whole decision making process but if you don't actually understand what you are holding in terms of the asset itself how can you possibly make good decisions with yeah, and how only many people are discussing it with their account their financial planner their their investment advisor their real estate agent you you kind of need a couple of different perspectives and then stitch them all together and and go from there right yeah, but I do believe that it, foundationally it starts with how good is the asset itself. So, you know, we've got a methodology where we, we work out and we do a lot of research for each individual property and we say, right, is it a flyer, a floater or a flop? Yeah. So if you have a flop, you want to get rid of it. If it's a flyer, you want to try and keep hold of it. And if it's a floater, there's a discussion to be had because a lot of the decision around a floater depends on, you know, where you are in your yeah, life. Okay. Wow, yeah, that's interesting. I guess there's maybe some upsides with floaters, some opportunities for, for renovation or are you sitting on it for subdivision or something like that? Yeah. I, exactly. I'm interested in 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 you and your business compared to say some other buyers agents. Um, I I I don't want to get you started on hotspotting yet because I've got a special question <laughs> just on that one. Oh. Um, but you focus in in Sydney and and more specifically certain pockets of Sydney, whereas there are some buyers agents who will invest basically Australia. Their whole market is the five hundred and twenty odd local government mm. areas. Um, that number's wrong. It's close. Um, wh yeah. What is it that makes you want to focus on on Sydney? Okay, so two reasons. One is because. This is where I can add the most amount of value in that I know this market intimately. My team know this market intimately. The second reason is that I do, through all of my research, believe that there are only two really low-risk markets to buy into uh, in Australia, and that is inner Sydney and inner Melbourne. And that's from an investment point of view. I actually don't think people should take risks investing in property. I think it's too much money, too much in the way of borrowing. Yep too much of a commitment and I think that there are definitely and I'm the absolute advocate for people getting good financial advice from uh, people other than property people so that they can A, get a diversified portfolio but B, don't buy risky property. So that is that's the two main reasons. It's not to say that people can't make money elsewhere in Australia and I'm not here saying that but what I am saying is people have to understand the risk in areas that don't have the same robust foundations that Sydney and Melbourne do and that trying to be everything to everybody I don't think does anybody any good. If you are going to buy in Brisbane for argument's sake, you really need to get a local specialist 
in that area. I see what happens when buyers agents who are not specialists, who rely too much on data, and I see the sort of stuff they buy, and I think they're doing their clients a massive disservice. Yeah, so because a lot of it comes down to relationships, right? You know, um, you you might go to an auction and you know the selling agent, you know techniques, you know that they're going to tell you the truth about how many buyers they've got or you know they're going to lie to you and pump it up. There's a certain value in that local knowledge, right? That is definitely part of it. There's no doubt about it. But it's also understanding because the thing is what underpins – you know, sustainable capital growth or any particular area is there's got to be strong owner-occupier demand. So, you know, investors fuel booms, right? And they also, when they pull out of an area, they, they, you know, they precipitate the crash as well. So who is left to buy property once investors leave? Owner-occupiers. So if they are not interested in buying in that area or they can't afford to buy in that area, then you don't have a very robust area. You don't have a low-risk area to, to, to buy in. So when you have local knowledge, you understand what it is that those owner-occupiers in that area want. Yeah. You understand what they'll pay for. And that fundamentally is the secret to buying a quality asset in that area. That's- because if you are an out-of-towner, you'll, you'll look at other things and you'll value different things and you will not understand what those locals will fight over and pay yeah, for. Yeah, the locals for. In, in one suburb that's maybe five Ks from another might uh, all tend to have children or they might be single professionals, a completely yeah. different type of, of dwelling, right? Also, there's, exactly. there's websites where you can get the percentages of owner-occupiers versus renters for a certain suburb. Is, is there a percentage sweet spot mm. that you look at or does it depend on the area? <laughs> well, that depends on the area, okay? So the sort of the conventional wisdom around that is 70% owner-occupied, yep. right? But if you look um, at Sydney, and since the nineteen, since the nineteen ninety, I think um, the best sub-performing suburb, taking away rezoning, right? Um, so rezoning is basically the the biggest um, up, gives the biggest uplift to a property value, right? But it's one off. Um, but since nineteen ninety in Sydney, the one suburb or little area that has done the best is you know Potts Point, Elizabeth Bay, Rushcutters Bay, that little mm-hmm. peninsula there. Now, if you look at Potts Point, last time I looked, it was 68% um, investor right. owned. So that's complete yeah. reversal of conventional wisdom, however, has been the best performing pocket or postcode in Sydney since 1990. A completely different drivers, so, too, right? Like that's, that's trophy land yeah. and some of the people that are renting, they're not your typical renter. They're probably... There might even be people that are um, almost famous in a business point of point of view. Oh, and they definitely are. But you've also got a wide disparity, uh, so a wide variety, I should say, or spread in terms of property. You've got tiny little studio apartments. Um, in fact, recently I just saw a twelve square meter studio in Darlinghurst to advertise twelve square meters. Um, <laughs> that's ter- that's yeah, terrible. Been in bigger car spaces. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. Um, right up to obviously multi, 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 multi million dollar, you know, harbour front and har- or harbour view apartments. There's not many houses yeah, okay. in that area, actually, but mostly apartments. And so, once again, that just completely turns on its head uh, a lot of this conventional wisdom around, oh, don't buy apartments. <laughs> you know, um, 
And I, I guess I love that. I love yeah. it because it's yeah. perverse. You know, there's there's so much of this. These are the formulas. You've got to follow these formulas and these are the magic rules. And it's like to a degree until you come across an exception and that's a very powerful exception that's, or a number yeah, that's, of factors. That's a good example of what people can expect if they check out the Elephant in the Room podcast as well. I can tell that, that you are very motivated by the perverse. <laughs> sounds like a weird thing to say but I mean that in the nicest possible way. Um, <laughs> What about people that you're, you've placed in, in, in properties, um, certainly investors in, in Sydney maybe a couple of years ago? I mean, um, through no fault of, of anybody buying in Sydney, chances are they might be sitting in negative growth at the moment. Um, you, you, you've talked a little bit about how um, areas with high investor concentrations it sort of seemingly amplifies the losses and the gains, but... I'm, I'm guessing you will still have mm. people that are sitting on sort of negative growth. Um, are they? Do, do they sort of understand as part of your process that there's sort of the peaks and troughs and a good quality thing is, you know, it, it's good quality over a time frame, not necessarily from one day to the next? Yeah. And look, I, it's interesting you ask that because, you know, possibly we do have some people sitting on a little bit of negative equity um, or at least they're worried, you know. I mean, it's yeah. human nature. Let's face it, the, the headlines are screaming, it's, it's tanking, it's worse than the recession, et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, you're going to be worried. Um, we do – our focus has always been very much on quality and, you know, one of the reasons that I have a small bespoke business is because the minute you start expanding and getting big numbers in terms of a buyer's agency, you dilute what you can – um, you dilute the message anyway because there simply isn't that much quality property out there to buy. So uh, we like to pick the eye teeth out of, it, out of it, but sometimes our own occupiers, they don't actually want to buy a quality property, i.e. something that's not great, might be B grade, um, really suits their needs or for whatever reason. And so we go through an education process with our clients as to what the drawbacks are with any property and none of them are perfect. So we need them to understand what might impact on ongoing capital growth and what might hold something back a little bit more compared to other properties. Um, the last few years we've, you know, I've developed what we call our, our capital growth predictive indicator and it is a scoring mechanism. So we score every property that we uh, evaluate for a client and we score it based on a whole range of characteristics and we we're scoring in the context of the suburb in which the property is in. Um, and so, yeah, it's very much part of our conversations. I think that now looking back, certainly I maybe I could have even had them a little bit, been a bit more, um, what's the word, a little bit more deliberate about talking about what happens when things slow down. Yep. You know, I guess we are having those conversations ongoing with our clients because we like to, we like our clients to make good decisions, not just in the lead up to buying, but while they own, you know, no knee-jerk reactions, for instance. And Yeah, that could and, undo a lot of the good that you've done in finding something that's maybe going to still double in 10 years' time, but yeah. might be negative four at the moment. Exactly right. And so we, we, you know, talk them through that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's very much part of our conversation in terms of why it's important to have that quality because it's about its relative performance or its performance relative to the rest of the market. Um, and so if the rest of the market's gone down 10% for argument's sake and yours has gone down five, well, then you're doing better than the rest, you yeah. know. So it, it's that relativity. And fundamentally, Sydney will get back into being, you know, neck and neck or we've been slightly above um, long-term performance, slightly above Melbourne. But in terms of Sydney and Melbourne have decoupled from the rest of the country some time ago. 
you know, so we will go back to being the strongest market. Yep. And that is a diversity of employers, population, it's, uh, it's, it's land constraints, so we can only go so far east. Yep. We've got transport problems with going too far west. Uh, is it all those basic yep. fundamentals that most investors would understand that, that makes Sydney and Melbourne much safer than, say, going to a, a regional centre? Absolutely. It's the economy. It's the diversity of employment, as you mentioned. There's also income. You know, so yes, while there's all the income stats are around about, you know, there's been no income growth. Once again, it's a bit like the Australian property market. Is there is there an Australian income test? You know, um, when you've got knowledge centres and you've got, um, you know, highly skilled uh, workers then and business owners and all the rest of it, then you've got an ability to be mo- or even people on a career trajectory, then they're increasing their income. Um, and that gives them the, the wherewithal to actually be able to borrow money to buy property. And, and then there's the fourth thing, which is the population growth, obviously. And, and what we've cracked 5 million in Sydney, I think Melbourne's about to crack 5 million. You know, we're both on, on track to, you know, substantially increase in terms of population over the next years. Um, all of those things will underpin any market, but obviously they're the strongest in these two markets. The, the fine tuning bit, although the absolute icing on the cake, you can get a great location, but it's the asset selection mm. that means you're going to be do extremely well or just okay. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about um, asset selections. Um, and I mentioned before that there are um, there's a, one thing I wanted to talk to you about in uh, particular, and. And what, one thing I really like about you on the podcast and the podcast in general is that you're pretty forthcoming in the stuff that you believe to be garbage. Um, you said you've softened on a few, you've cemented at others. Um, yep. The cementy ones, I think, are hotspotting and buying new. I'm, I'm interested mm. in, in these two points. Can you share some thoughts about why you think hotspotting is, is, is a little bit too of a persuasive idea but not great in reality and and your objections to to new property yeah okay so hotspotting look it's all very logical isn't it if i'm going to buy a property then i should absolutely look to see which is the next market's going to take off okay absolutely and okay and that's great in theory but the thing is that unless it's got those fundamentals and it's just lagging behind for some other reason and this is I'll just say a little segue here. You know, buying because of infrastructure is dangerous, very, very dangerous. But that's just a quick segue and back on the track here. So so um, you're hotspotting, you're looking for the next place to go off. If it's going off for a good reason, that's a sustainable good reason, it just means it's catching up to everywhere else and it's going to continue well, then that's great, okay? But if it doesn't have those fundamentals in place for long-term sustainable capital growth, then you need to understand you're not investing, you're speculating, and if it doesn't go off, right, you're stuck with whatever you pay probably or maybe less. If it does go off, you need an exit strategy. You need to watch that market like a hog so you can get out at the right time. Buying in at the right time, getting out at the right time, that's what hotspotting is I was going to say it's about. a game of timing, right, because there will be people here uh, maybe listening hopefully that have purchased in a mining town and made an absolute fortune but – even mm. people like yourself are expert that are experts don't play with that themselves unless they've got silly money to throw away because the timing is like yeah. nobody knows nobody can actually predict to within even the month or the quarter that this is actually when it turns around right 
No, we can look, we're on the ground every single day, right? We felt it last year in May. And I'm telling you, my team, we discussed it, we felt it. And then I think the official figures was the boom was over in June last year. Okay. So, but we are in it day in, day out, right? So we picked it. And however, if you're an investor and you are not in it day in, day out, you are only going to know after it happened. Yep. And so these people hanging around now go, I'm going to wait till the market bottoms out. It's like, well, that's great because you're not going to actually know it's bottomed out until it's no longer bottoming out, you know, until it started taking off again. Then you get back to competing, okay? Or I'm not going to buy until the market, you know, I'm not going to sell, or I'm going to sell just before it peaks, you know. Well, that's that's good. Don't leave it a bit too late because, you know, it's going to be yeah. rushed to the bottom. So, you know, and so there's all these smart people and it seems logical, but this is back to that flawed thinking. You know, it, it seems logical until you really do think about it. You think, oh, yeah, why about if I just focus on buying a quality asset in a really bloody good location? And it doesn't really matter when I yeah. buy it then because I'm going to buy it for a long term. I've got at least 10 years I'm thinking of committing to this property and, and I will buy it and I will make a commitment to it for lots of good reasons. And once I commit to it, I'm just going to let it do what it has to do. Um, that's hot spotting does my head in because – it, it appeals to unsophisticated investors and they get caught out because they get sold this dream and they don't understand the risks they're taking. They don't understand that they need to then watch that market like a hook so they get out in time. So you heard it here first, Mount Isa, Brogan Hill, Cooper PD, these are all not hotspots. <laughs> and, and Not anymore. Yeah, well, not anymore. <laughs> they may have been. And, and you know, like I don't know enough about those places. Maybe there are other fundamentals, but there would have been people that jump, jumped in based on one particular mine that was opening that um, yes. if they timed it, great. But if you won, don't go back to the casino table again on that basis because it ain't going to happen again. It's funny you say that because that's, that's an analogy I give. I only once been in the casino and actually a bit bet on a roulette table and I did win and I've never been back because I know the odds are against me and it's exactly the run same. As, run exactly as fast as you can. <laughs> now, um, and buying you, uh, you're, you're not about yes. it. Yes. No. Well, once again, it all comes down to risk, okay? And so, I mean, that's just my mantra. Property is expensive and it's risky. So, we want to minimize those risks wherever possible. Um when it comes to buying brand new, you've got enormous risk for so many reasons. And look, I'll just list off a, a few, a handful really. I mean, you, you've got the fact that you don't really know how good that building is going to be. Um, a very high percentage of buildings run into trouble uh, and most of that troubles around water. Most of that water damage costs a lot of money. Often they've got to go and chase builders. Often builders go broke. Often they have to go uh, into court. They have to fund that court battle. While they're funding that court battle, they've got to raise special levies. While they're raising special, you know, I mean, it just goes mm. on and on and on. And everyone thinks brand new doesn't going to cost me much because it's a brand new building. And they actually absolutely fail to understand that a very high proportion of buildings actually end up costing their owners a lot of money in this sort of area. Um, another risk, well, there's, there's something called settlement settlement risk. I don't even think it was invented a couple of years until a couple of years ago, and, and that's a situation now where you've got people that have um, agreed on a price, committed to it, signed a contract on the basis that they've got finance, 
But of course, no bank's going to guarantee that I'll, you'll still get that finance at that same level in three, four years' time. Um, circumstances change. Well, commissions come and go. Um, you know, bank lending policies change. You might get a transfer overseas. I mean, you might have a baby. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in your life in that period of time. But people have been signing up willy-nilly to buy brand new um, properties and not realising that and not realising that then settlement date comes and you've got two weeks and you've got to basically find that money from somewhere. Uh, what happens when that valuation comes in 20% less, you know, than you paid? And, you know, there are some stats running around at the moment suggesting that at least 50% of bank valuations currently coming in at under 50, uh, sorry, under 100% or less than what was agreed to be paid back whenever contracts were signed. So that's an enormous risk. And, and I think, too, the other thing is that, in particularly with unsophisticated investors and first home buyers, they've been really encouraged to go into the brand new space. And investors in particular haven't realised that when you've got a glut of two-bedroom apartments, then um, that means that's going to put downward pressure on rents. Uh, it takes a long time for them to get absorbed into the marketplace. If you need to sell, there's also a glut of other people that need to sell exactly the same type of property. You know, it, it's, 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 really, it's really interesting um, to see the, yeah. the policies around new builds. So, so you mentioned that we're, we're sort of being shepherded there, first homeowners getting a grant for new housing. That sounds like mm. a good idea politically because it's going to help the construction industry create more employment, that sort of thing. We had depreciation changes in May 2017 that basically made it much more attractive to buy new the, the pending labour policy is that negative gearing will exist on new properties. This happens to be a place where the spruikers exist more than anywhere else and you yourself, Veronica, are saying yes. this is the riskiest area um, but we're all getting pointed in yep. that direction. Yes, and, and, and it's, it really horrifies me and, you know, and I, I love watching Q&A on a Monday night. I love a bit mm -hmm. of... Love Bit of political argy-bargy and, and, you know, the politicians on both sides of the fence sit, get on there and they say, oh, the, the answer to affordability is supply. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that once again, it's forward thinking. It sort of is, but the reality is you've got to build what people want to live in and the supply has to be in the right areas and the right type of property and has to accommodate the people that need the accommodation. And if that's simply that simple, if it's really that simple, how come you've got an oversupply issue in Melbourne? How come you've got an oversupply issue in Brisbane? And mm. you're going to have one in Sydney too very soon. Um, how can that happen if that's the answer? So it's not the answer to um, our demand for housing, the fact that we do need supply. Um, it's not the answer to affordability because, you know, these properties are relatively affordable because prices are falling plummeting in some cases in these this sort of stock but if they're not the right stock in the right locations it doesn't matter you can build as much as you want but but this has all been sold and spruiked to investors and they're the ones carrying the can not the developers i'm loving the not passion, the government for that way, matter Veronica, it's, uh, i've just i've just had <laughs> of wine and uh, I just wish I had, you know, one of those sort of Hoyt's reclinable seats and some popcorn or something. I'm loving this. It makes me want to ask, are there any other investing bugbears that grind your gears or maybe even if we want to take it a bit more positive, some of these things where the cement has, has thawed a bit, maybe you've had your mind changed. I'll leave that open to you. <laughs> Look, I do think there are some developers who are being 
um, very considered in this space and I'm yet to interview them because even though I have invited some of them onto the podcast, <laughs> I think they might be a little scared. Um, but I am aware of um, some that are deliberately creating sort of family-friendly environments in apartments uh, and that means enough space internally but also, you know, really great communal spaces. Um, I think there is so much and also downsizes, you know, that there are people who want to downsize into apartments and they want space and they will value space, they will pay for space and I think you know, it's heartening to understand that there are some developers out there really thinking about this and wanting to create these sorts of environments. Now, I can't talk categorically about who they are because they haven't been brave enough to get on the podcast yet, but but I'm seeing this. It's a small percentage of developers, but well, they're definitely certainly part of the it's somewhat heartening. And, and yeah, you may raise a good point with downsizes. There's there's a there's a there's money to be made for clever people giving them essentially what they want isn't that the f- one of the fantastic things with business and commerce you you actually sell a product that someone loves and they'll pay you handsomely for it right and therein lies the weirdness around this whole um spruker thing right so that's an owner occupier determining what they want to live in and you know what if you have a large in a good location with really easy access, as in level access, whether it be a lift or, you know, um, a garden apartment, for instance, then the downsizers fight over it. It, it, They're highly competitive. Um, However, there's still enough people that want quick path to riches and want to be sold a dream, and I think it's that and that's really a bubble, you know, and that's what's driven so much of our development, you know, this this false mm. idea that people are investing. Um, and it really has, you know, so because, yeah, part of me says, well, if people don't want to live in these apartments and they don't want to live in that area, for instance, or they don't want to live in a two-bedroom apartment in that area, um, yeah, yeah, then exactly. why are they still building them? Well, clearly there's a market. It's just that that market hasn't worked out that they're not good investments. Now, hopefully, that will all start making itself abundantly clear, and they can stop building this crap along the way. Though, unfortunately, as we've as we've seen with a lot of mm. those um, valuations coming in uh, under the agreed price, um, I want to talk about the the property challenges at the yep. moment. So, we've got a, we've got essentially a credit crunch that's that's really having an effect on on Sydney and Melbourne, and, and perhaps in some respects things got a little bit insane with with some of the the price gains eventually we would have had to have a period of, of of softening what 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 do you see in the in the landscape for 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 lending and the availability of finance and 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 you know post uh, royal commission post the election what 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 is what does the world look like well i'm hoping the pendulum goes back to the center um look i do think that it was far too easy to get money and uh, I don't think that's a good thing for the market. So I think we're seeing the, the impacts of that or the fallout from that now. But I do think that they've gone to the other extreme. And I've had more than one sort of slight conspiracy theorist suggest to me that maybe the banks are doing it deliberately to show the government who wow. really is in control. <laughs> so and may, maybe that's true. I don't know. That's where you can um, stick your royal yeah. commission. And, I mean, As I said, and I have then now that. we've got the, the RBA saying, like, mm. you're going to have to – calm down a little bit so yeah wow that's uh it's too terrifying to think about but it's uh it makes sense 
Yeah, so it is an interesting one that I and yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not saying either or. I don't know enough about it to to really have a firm opinion on that. But it's an interesting consideration, and I do think that, uh, as I said, I, I, I look at it as being a pendulum, gone from one extreme to the other. And I'm hoping when it comes back to the centre, that um, some more sanity will prevail. But I do think that some, you know, prudential controls are a good thing. Um, I guess I hadn't realised until and probably most other people hadn't until the Royal Commission hadn't realised actually how lax it all was. You know, I was under the false belief that, you know, our banking system was a lot tighter and that's why we were not vulnerable to what happened in the US, you know, with the subprime thing. Um, And, you know, and oftentimes I'd I'd be saying, oh, no, we don't have the same sort of banking system here, you know, we're safe. But uh, clearly we weren't as safe as certainly I thought. So, um, you know, so therefore I I don't see this whole thing as 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 um, terrible, but I do think some sanity has to re-enter. Um, anecdotally, I keep hearing stories of, you know, from from a variety of brokers all telling stories of some really insane sort of hoops that their clients who would normally be seen as very good credit risks, you know, having to jump through these hoops to get financed. And I think putting those roadblocks in place of people that are otherwise, you know, good credit risks, that's, I don't know why that is the case. Uh, so, you know, all of that's got to settle down and, and go back to normal, I think, before we see any freedom, mm-hmm. shall we say. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And uh, I don't know how long it'll last for either. Look, I am seeing people are getting money. And I also am seeing that there are a lot of people that have been very, very conservative. And really, this is their opportunity. And I can't believe they're not grabbing it. But I guess they are conservative. So that's why they're not doing it. And to borrow a phrase, the elephant in the room is is the negative gearing stuff. Where land on that? Yeah, I am gobsmacked, quite frankly, at the labour, um, the opposition, the labour policy that is so hell bent on shoving this through, even in the face of everything that's happening at the moment. Yeah, it's one. It's one thing to have a, a policy that they think is. It's forward thinking. It's you know maybe a, a a generational change where we have to go through a little bit of pain. But but that was at the peak of a market which which was you know was sort of starting to get a little bit crazy. Um, and you know there's a lot of arguments to the merits of doing it back when the market was crazy. I think the the record will show that that if you're going to whack property, APRA's got probably the sharpest scalpel around. But but it's, <laughs> it's such a yeah. different prospect right now, right? Look, you know, their policy, their, their problem, you know, so therefore I, I make housing more affordable. Right, well, you know, once again, we are talking, we're, we're a big country. Um, Sydney and Melbourne is where it's least affordable. That We've had the, the highest amount of price falls. I think, forget Perth for, 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 for a minute. But... Um, so you you can't. This is a really about a Sydney. That's a Sydney Melbourne argument starters. Okay, um, we've just had a fall in Sydney. What nine point five percent over the last hell of it long? Um, okay, is that not going to make housing affordable? Okay, so what's negative gearing going to do now to the market if that's their argument? Um, the other argument, you know, it's about fat cats and rich people um, unfairly accessing taxation benefits. Well, you know what? Rich people are going yeah. to invest anyway. You know, they are going to go into wealth creation anyway. They'll just find other ways to invest their money, no skin off their nose. It's actually the people that need the negative gearing in order to invest 
that are going to suffer. And it's a question of timing as well, so, too, right? So because um, people would most likely be negatively geared in the first couple of years because the rent's sort of not covering covering yep. the, the, the mortgage cost. But yes. the mortgage cost stays the same or goes down, I guess, these days. A lot more people doing principal and interest even on their investment. The rents go up. Suddenly down the track, we're actually getting taxed on this on this income. So it's just a question of where the revenue sits and how how much more affordable do we want it to be and what happens on the other side how you know what percentage of household wealth is tied up in property and how much do we want to smash that so mm. we can go and buy some more yeah and look the thing too is that let's take a really long term view on this okay people buy investment properties so that they can fund their retirement. If we are funding our own retirement, then we are not relying on the government to fund our retirement. Now, um, some recent modelling, and I can't remember exactly where this came from, I think it was the Grattan Institute, I think, um, you know, basically put a cost on each, you know, government-funded retiree of around about $800,000, right? That's assuming there's so much money invested in there. What else could you do with that money if the government was investing that money rather than paying pensioners? And so you go, all right, okay. So and we interviewed Noel Whitaker for the, for the podcast, and we haven't actually released the episode yet, but he was talking about this. He said, so it might cost the, the taxpayer maybe twenty-five grand um, to assist a, an individual to buy a negative-geared property until it becomes – uh, you know, cash flow neutral, um, and then long term they get to fund their retirement, um, and that saves the economy yeah. eight hundred thousand dollars. So, you know, that's um, I just think it's such a short sighted um, policy designed purely to have a populist reaction and gain votes. I mean, and the other thing too is this two tiered yeah, market yeah. it will create. The the, the second really hand designed, new properties, do you mean? Yeah. And this is, you know, it's, it's, this is the elephant in the room. People, government, I mean, sorry, Labor policymakers, who is going to buy those secondhand properties? And if an investor's got a half a brain, they're going to look at the stats and they're going to say, I've got better than our average odds of losing money or losing value on that brand new property. And I'm better if, if I'm a top earning, um, if I earn in the top tax bracket for every dollar i'm going to get back 47 cents it doesn't take a genius to work out that that is not a very good proposition um so therefore the only people that are possibly going to get caught up in this are the most vulnerable people in this whole equation i.e your first home buyers who really need to get a good firm footing on that ladder or your unsophisticated investors that really don't need to be throwing away think, their money like that. Yeah, very salient points. I think you're preaching to the to the converted here. There's a there's a lot of unintended consequences, and it seems like there's a lot of conflict. Um, but you know, that's just adding to a, a lot of noise at the moment. I, I, let's 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 try and turn down the noise um, for a second. I, I'm interested in. Pardon me. There's a there's an ebook on your website talking about how to choose a low risk investment property. You sort of mentioned about buying a a good quality <laughs> property. How, how do we ignore all of these things that we get fixated on, but in the long term scheme of things, don't really have a huge impact on on what we're trying to do personally with our portfolios over twenty thirty years? What's your best advice for for finding a property like that? Yeah, look, it, it comes down to the first part is location. You know, the 80% of it, the Pareto's rule, 80-20 rule, 80% of it is location, right? So you get that right. And that's where I come back down to that, you know, the inner 
say, 10, maybe 15 k's of Sydney. I mean, as Sydney expands and, and population grows, it, it, you can almost push it out to 15 k's. Um, Melbourne, somewhat the same. Within those inner areas, and not it does just because it's inside that area doesn't mean it's a great location either. Within each location, you've, you've really got to look for pockets that are better. Yeah, and when I say better, you know, you're talking about access to transport, access to cafes, access to lifestyle, away from sort of public housing, away from main roads, um, away from flood zones. Uh, you know, you really have to understand your local area in order to be able to carve your way through a suburb and work out which are the good pockets, which aren't. So it's got those fundamentals. It's got those four fundamentals, you know, the population, incomes, employment and um, economy. You, you get all that right. You've got, you got lots of owner-occupiers that want to buy there and will buy there and can afford to buy there. All of those ingredients are there. Then it's about understanding, back to that idea I said before, about understanding what is it that those owner-occupiers want, what will they pay for, what actually are the characteristics that will lend an individual property to perform better than others in the area. A great learning for this in the current market is to go to auctions. Go to auctions and look at the ones that are popular and look at the ones that fall flat and look at the properties, you know, critically and say, well, why is it people will fight over certain properties and they won't fight over others? And, you know, the answers in lie in that. The answers lie in what's easy to sell I in think, a bad yeah, market. I think that's fantastic <laughs> advice and some of the best advice is often quite simple and if you're thinking of purchasing something that is in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions, do yourself a favour and take a couple of sad days out and do a bit of research before you jump in. Veronica, um, how do people get in mm. touch with you if they want to have a chat or, or um, get some advice on, on where to take the next step with you? Well, the best way is via my website. So it's gooddeeds, G-O-O-D-D-E-D-S.com.au. Uh, I've got loads of blogs there, as you mentioned, ebook. Um, the link to the podcast is on there as well. That makes it easy. Or that's the elephantintheroom.com.au. Um, both of those websites, you can you can send a message that will get through to me. Um, I'm working on a few other projects, you know, and certainly uh, I've got, you know, advice for people that are considering selling something in their portfolio as well to help them work out what, you know, what, what are they actually holding with the caliber of what they, they're holding before they actually make a decision in terms of what to sell or if to sell. Um, and, so, and there's a lot of resources on the website just in terms of the blog as well and checklists and, and what not Beautiful. that can help. And if we can finish with one piece of advice that you would give to property investors either perennially or in the current market, what would that be? Don't rush. You know, it's uh, it's a very expensive, uh, you know, if you get it wrong, you will live with regret, right? And it's not comfortable. <laughs> it's so not comfortable. So take your time and treat it with respect and get it right. And it can be re extraordinarily rewarding and financially freeing to have and hold good property. perfectly sagely advice. Veronica, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.